James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now there is a lot here tonight and I can't wait to show it to you, but we will get to verse 13, Lord willing, because we did last night and that means we have to tonight to keep the two Bible studies together. So as we unpack these verses, it'll help us though to remember what James had just finished saying. Remember, James did not write a letter and say, okay, that's the end of chapter one. Now I'm going to start chapter two. James wrote a whole letter. Remember where we ended up last week? Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he's saying is this. Religion that's undefiled or pure is to look after those who are considered less in this world. Widows and orphans were considered less by far in the world in which James was writing to, and unfortunately today as well. And he said real religion will demonstrate itself by how we treat those who are considered less by the world. But then he goes on to talk about how this problem of partiality, favoritism, judging people and putting people in categories in our minds and in our hearts how it's manifested itself in many ways. And one of them is subtle or maybe even not so subtle, and that's favoritism. To show favoritism or partiality is to show that we're not letting Christ live his life through us because the Bible says God shows no partiality. Now we're going to unpack this for you a little bit, and I'm going to do it by the only way I know how. I'm just going to let the scripture speak for itself. And so I'm going to warn you now, I am not showing you all the places that say that God shows no partiality. It's going to feel like it. Go to Job chapter 34. Job chapter 34, because I think the best way for me to emphasize this is allow the word of God do the do the talking and not Jim Johnson. Go to 30, Psalm 34. Sorry, Job 34. Job 34 verses 10 through 19. Elihu is speaking. If you know, remember, Elihu is the one who speaks for God. He's the good guy. Not one of the three friends that whatever they say is really not right. Job 34, verses 10 through 19, Elihu says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, 
and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Now who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Remember years ago when Time Magazine came out and people were saying, God is dead? If that were true, we would have ceased to exist. Keep reading. Verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they're all the work of his hands. So he, Elihu's saying, listen, be careful before you start making judgments about God and think he's unfair. Can one who hates justice be in charge? And God shows no partiality. Now, you're going to see a few things coming up real quick in the passages I'm going to show you that it might look like he does, but we're going, to, we're going to lay it out for you a little bit more. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, though, verses 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. God speaking, and he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Loving the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, Egypt 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. A couple things here. He's saying to them, first of all, God shows no partiality. And you guys were sojourners. And so because of the fact that you were sojourners and God showed his love for you, you need to have an attitude toward the sojourner of well. Remember where you came from and how God showed you no partiality and he chose to reveal himself to you and to make you a mighty nation. Now, a lot of us would say, wait a minute, if, he, if God's chosen to reveal himself to the people of Israel, and, and, and as you're going to see in Romans chapter, uh, it talks about that in Romans chapter 2, that, that to the Jew first and also the Greek, it appears that he's got partiality, he's got favoritism. Well, let me remind you from our study of Romans, so we don't have to go back over it again. When it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, remember, it's not saying I gave the best choice to the Jews and then everybody else gets leftovers. He's saying they got more and everybody else did get less. But remember how the scripture says everyone will be held in accountability according to how much he had revealed to them. So he's fair to everyone. 
And if he chooses to reveal himself more to the Jews and then he does to the Gentiles, that's his, his right. But he's also just because the Jews who had more revealed to them are going to be held in stricter judgment on the day of judgment according to how they responded. That's why Jesus himself said it will be easier in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. Wait a minute, Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city. Yeah, but they didn't have as much, much light revealed to them as Capernaum did. Capernaum is where Jesus did most of his miracles. I actually had the privilege of preaching in Capernaum about a week ago, two weeks ago. I've lost track of all, all my travels what, when it was, but I actually got to preach in Capernaum just outside Peter's house. But let me tell you, the scripture says it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. Why? Because they had more revealed. So it may look like he's partial, but he's not because those who had more revealed are going to be held in stricter accountability than those who had less. He's just. He'll hold everybody accountable to what they had revealed to them. But he also says, keep this in mind. I even care about the sojourner. Keep going to Proverbs chapter 28. Look at verse 21. Proverbs 28 verse 21 says this, to show partiality is not good. But boy, does he not know us or what? But for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. We have a tendency to have in our mind what we know is right, but we're willing to, for a bribe, maybe go against it. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 8 through 10. Matthew 22, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, look closely, both good and bad, or bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Isn't that interesting? In this parable of the great wedding feast, remember he talked about how he revealed himself to the Jews and invited them, but they said no. And he said, go out into the highways and byways and invite everybody. Both bad and good. You don't have to be good in order to get to heaven. You just have to respond in faith to what he's offered. I know, and by the way, there's no one good but God. There's no one good but God. But the people that others considered good, they were invited. And the people that others considered bad, they were invited too. It may surprise you who's going to be in heaven. It may surprise you who's not going to be in heaven. And he might even put somebody next door to you that you hope didn't get in. <laughs> Go to Acts 10. Acts 10. I've often wondered when Jesus sent out two by, the disciples two by two, who he paired up with who. And if I think I know the Lord well enough, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't put Matthew, the tax collector who worked for the Romans, even though he was a Jew, together with Simon the Zealot, who was the fierce Jew who thought all Jews who worked for Rome should be killed. He probably had them pair up. What's that? He did in The Chosen? He put those two together? Well, I'm sure glad that God was getting his advice from the chosen. So um, <laughs> let's get Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Now let me set the stage. This is where Peter goes to the Gentile house. Because remember, he, 
he didn't think it was right to go talk to a Gentile. And this is the crazy thing. Even though Jesus went out of his way to go through Samaria while those guys were following him, he went out of his way to go through Samaria when no one would go through Samaria. And he talked to a woman in the middle of the day and a woman who was pretty not a great woman. He kept blowing all those, those uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, preconceived notions just totally out of the water, but they didn't get it. And even at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were preaching, and if you go and look, everybody heard them preaching in Gentile languages. Here are men of Galilee preaching in Gentile languages. Yet Peter's sermon, he keeps saying, men of Israel, men of Israel, men of Israel. But they're all hearing it in Gentiles' language. It doesn't click. So a little bit later, Peter's on the roof of this house and has this vision where the sheep comes down with all the unclean animals. And God says, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, God, I've never, never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. And from that, he realized that there was a knock on the door right afterwards. And some Gentiles were saying, hey, we're looking for a guy named Simon Peter. Uh, God told us to come get him. And so he goes. And he goes into the house and he tells the people there, he says, look, you guys know that it's against our law, not God's law, but their Jewish laws to associate with anyone who wasn't a Jew. It was against the law. But God showed me that I shouldn't do that. So he shares the gospel and they all get saved. And the Holy Spirit comes on them just like he did at Pentecost to the Jews. And look at what Peter says in verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Here's Peter that preached at Pentecost under the power of the Holy Spirit going, wow, I just learned something. God doesn't show partiality. Even though I've been saved, even though I've been used to God mightily, I still kind of thought there were things he liked better than others. He doesn't. Let me make a statement that you hopefully understand. If not, let it sink in. God loves the sinner in hell just as much as he loves you. Now, you and I who are saved through faith in Jesus Christ can experience the full extent of his love. But he doesn't love us more. He loves the, Remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves the lost person just as much. Now, interestingly enough, this same Peter who here goes, oh, Wow. Now I know God shows no partiality. And he started eating with the Gentiles. But then some, you know, religious snobs from the church in Jerusalem started coming down to Antioch. And Peter, who had been eating with the Gentiles, acted like he didn't do that. And he had to be rebuked by Paul. Go to Romans 2. Look at verses 6 through 11. God is going to render to each one according to his works... To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. Remember, that's tied to how much they had revealed to him. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no Partiality. Isn't that interesting? God shows no partialities in that same passage that says the Jew first and also the Greek. Just because he shows more to one person than another has nothing to do with partiality because God's justice is tied to how much everyone's had revealed and his judgment will be in the same way. He's fair. He's fair. Some of you would say, well, 
If he's easier on the people that had less revealed, I'd like to be one of those people that had less revealed. Do I have to go back to that Job 34 passage where you're starting to tell God how we ought to do it? Does he who hates justice judge rightly? Do you see what I'm saying? Should he be, be careful when you start saying, I think God should have done it this way. The scripture says he doesn't have partiality. He sees everyone the same. That doesn't mean he wants them to stay in the situation they're in. But he has a love for everyone. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Jim, you sure you're not going to use the whole Bible? To, no, I'm not showing you all the places, just a few. Go to Ephesians 6, look at verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. As we've been seeing through all these passages, God is going to render to each one according to what they've done. He knows what you've done, whether or not it's from the heart, whether it's not from the heart. Don't be like, well, I think I did pretty good. Well, be careful. Because God's going to render according to what you've done, but it's only tied to your heart whether or not you be rewarded or lose reward. You could do the right thing, but with the wrong heart and get no points. But look at what he says now in verse nine. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. By the way, do you think there's a reason why the scripture keeps telling us over and over and over and over from the Old Testament through to the New? That God doesn't show partiality? Any idea why? Because we do. Because we do. And if anybody here is sitting here saying, I don't, you have another problem, and that's lying. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Oh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, the, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one, or one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass and the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Go back real quick. Verse 17. And if you call on him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Don't miss this. We all have a tendency to want to compare how we're doing with the people around us. 
But haven't we been saying already tonight that God's going to hold each one accountable for how much he had revealed to them and what he expected of them? To one he gave, Matthew chapter 25, parable of the talents, and one he gave five talents, another two, another one, each according to their ability. And they were held accountable for what he had given them to do. If you start off even by comparing your life to anybody else's, you've already started off on the wrong foot because God's not using the same measuring stick with them and you. You don't know if there are five, a two, or a one, and you don't know if you're a five or a two or a one, but he's told us that we're, there are some are fives, some are twos, and some are ones, each according to his determination. That's why Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each of us with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is preaching or prophesying, use it in proportion to the, your faith. Just because you're a preacher, don't compare yourself to the other preachers. You preach in the measure and the way and God's, God's going to hold you accountable. And you just make sure you're living the life that God has for you to live. And take your eyes off of the people around you because we look at the people around us for one of two reasons. One, to build ourselves up because we look and say, hey, uh, you know, I think I'm doing better than them. You know, and I'm looking around the room and there's quite a few people I could use to make myself feel pretty good. Joke. It was a joke. They're all sitting around going, who is it? Who is it? Okay, it was James. But no, so, but I can say that because I know a brother can handle it. But let me say this. We also do it because we not only want to build ourselves up, we also we want to take the easy road. And we look for someone else that might not be doing as much. Folks, when you stand before God, you can't say, what about Bob? He says, I'll deal with Bob when he gets here, but I'm talking to you right now. And I gave you this, 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 and this, and this. I revealed this, 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 and this to you. Let's talk about you. Is that fair? Yes. It's just. By the way, go to Luke chapter 14. This passage of scripture reminded me of something that I'm going to tell you about in just a second. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. We also look at people, not only to make ourselves feel better, but we also look at people to see if we can get something from them. And that's what James is talking about when we get back to chapter 2 in a second here. But go to Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, Jesus is speaking, he said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is not saying never invite your family, your friends, or your neighbors. He's not saying that because the Bible is real clear about if we don't treat our family well, something's wrong. But what he's saying is this. Don't just invite the people that can pay you back. Invite those who can't pay you back. Be the one who picks the check up a lot. Wouldn't it be cool if all of us wanted to pick up the check? That'd be kind of a fun people to hang out with, wouldn't it? Years ago, when my wife and I were first married and living in New Orleans, I was in seminary in New Orleans, and we lived our first two years of marriage 
in a trailer on the trailer park in the back of the campus of New Orleans Seminary. There's 85 acres, it's a beautiful campus. And, but in the back is the part that doesn't look as good, that's the trailer park. And we lived in the trailer park, but we didn't just live in the trailer park, we lived at the very end of the trailer park, right next to a very multi-storied uh, housing uh, building uh, that was called the zoo. You know why it was called the zoo? Because any seminary family that had more than three kids all had to stay in that building. There were kids everywhere. It was the zoo. And our trailer was at the end of the trailer park right next to the zoo. And there was a little grassy area next to us and the kids would all play and the playground was there across the street. Many's the time as a kid would get thirsty and go for a drink of water, they'd turn off our water in our trailer because they got the wrong spigot by the water thing. And we'd be in the shower yelling through the wall, the blue one, turn it back on. But every time we would drive into the campus, there were two main entrances to the New Orleans Seminary campus, one on the right, one on the left. The one on the left went by the preschool daycare center where my wife worked. And the other one went right by the president's house. The president lived right there. Dr. Chuck Kelly lived in the house there while I was a seminary student. And Landrum level was for one year, and then Chuck took over after that. But he lived in a big, big, big brick house there on the main entrance. And we had to drive back past his house and all the nice houses of the seminary professors to get all the way to the back to the trailer park where we were living in one that was 12 feet wide, 62 feet long. And I always told my wife, one day we're just going to pull into his driveway, knock on the door, and invite him and his wife to dinner at our trailer. We probably won't be able to serve him hot dog, anything but hot dogs, but we're going to invite the president and his wife to our trailer for hot dogs because once they've come and had dinner with us, they're obligated to invite us to their house <laughs> and serve a steak. And I'd said that many a time. Let's invite them. We didn't really even care about the president and his wife. We just were more interested in what he could do for us. Go back to James chapter 2 now. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Then look at verses 5 through 8. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Oh, and also, are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? James continues his teaching on this by reminding them, as we've already seen in chapter 1, that God has blessed the poor with faith. Not everyone that's poor has faith, but it, as we've already studied, it's easier for poor people to have faith because they got nothing else to lean on. So it's easier for them to be, have, have faith. And remember how we've talked about the true test and the harder test is riches? Go back to James chapter 1 again. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and, and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In Revelation, we don't have time to turn there. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Jesus is speaking to the church at Smyrna. And he says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. You're rich. Why? Because they were rich in what God counted as valuable. And that's faith. But we all have a tendency. I've been a pastor for years. Been traveling for 17 now. But prior to that, for 20 years, I was pastor of churches. And it's very tempting to see a very wealthy family all of a sudden come in and think, hmm, they could be a help. Or a family that comes in, well, like we had in our church in Chicago that literally lived across the street from the church in the trailer park and had seven kids. And you have to realize that this is going to be a drain on the benevolence. And it's very hard as a human not to show favoritism. And if you think you don't have that problem, like I said, you got two problems now. You still got that problem and now you lie. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, talking to the church in Corinth about their love gift for the poor in Jerusalem, reminded them of the Macedonians and out of their poverty, they gave from their hearts. Why? Not because they had a lot of money to give, but they, because they were rich in faith. And they were willing to just give it even though they didn't have it. And Paul said, look at these people. That's the kind of people God's impressed with. And he said, look, why are you looking down on the poor people? Well, they don't work as hard as I do. If they had just applied themselves, be careful. You don't know the life that God chose for them and what his purposes were in their life. You know, the Bible says in the book of, chapter, book of Acts chapter 17 that he determines the exact places we'd live, the time we'd be born in history. He's done it for his reasons. Some of you, well, I actually think it's more than some of you. How many of you had to say whether or not you'd be born to the parents you were born to or in the town you were born in? Or in the family situation that you were brought, brought up in. You know, the Bible says he predetermined where you'd be born. And he put you in the family. He put you in for his reasons. Lots of them. Bible, in Acts 17, Paul goes on and says he does it so that we'd come to find him. And on top of that, he's going to use the things that he put us through or had us experience for his purposes that he's got in mind for us down the road. But then he added one more thing that we just looked at as well. He said, also, uh, have you forgotten that the rich people, the people you're kind of impressed with, are the, ones who, are the ones who hate God? They're blaspheming the glorious name that you've been given? They're the ones who actually are oppressing you right now? I wrote this in my notes. Why do you want to fill your pews with members, quote unquote, who trust more in their money than God? Why do you want to fill your church with members who trust more in their money than God? Oh, and by the way, we do. Because we see people as commodities. Valuable or not valuable. Well, let me say something to you, brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking to myself as well. That's not how God sees people. And if you're seeing people in that way, you're not letting God live his life through you and show you how he sees people. If you've never gotten it, I've told you about it before. If you've not gotten it, get the book, The Practice of the Presence of God by a, a monk named Brother Lawrence. 
It's a small, simple little read. These are his letters that he wrote to a friend as he was experiencing what it meant to continually talk to the Lord. He was a monk who lived in a monastery, but he had responsibilities in the monastery as well. And he loved his times of prayer in his prayer closet where he'd get alone with God in the dark. And he just he would come out of those times saying, I wish I could just stay in there and pray and spend time in fellowship with God. But I got to go to the kitchen because he worked in the kitchen and I got to flip eggs and I got to do other things around here. I wish I could just stay in there. And then it hit him. The Bible says pray without ceasing. That God's always with us. Why do I have to always? There's valuable times that we need to go get alone and be with God in private. God, Jesus did it himself. But he also said, I came to realize that if God's always with me, why can't I talk to him all the time? And so he began to practice the presence of God. And he shares in his letters, you've got to get the book. I'm telling you, it'll help your prayer life a ton. He shares in his letters to his friend that it changed how he started to see people. Because as he was serving in the kitchen line, the other monks that were coming through in the monastery, he was talking to God and God was talking to him. And he would be, as he handed some breakfast to a guy he didn't like, someone that pushed his buttons and rubbed him the wrong way, he'd say, Lord, how do you see it? The Lord started to give him a heart for these people that he before didn't have a heart. By the way, this lesson tonight, you, if you set out of here and say, I'm going to start seeing people like Jesus does, good luck. You won't. You can't. But if you ask him to show you, ask him little by little to begin to, and you're going to start noticing the people on the side of the street with their signs a little bit different. And you're going to let the Lord talk to you about that. Again, don't turn it into a policy. I have to be careful that way as well. I've been a pastor for years. I've dealt with people coming up to the church and asking for handouts. And, and I know the people that work the system. And I also know that some of these people on the side of the road really don't need as much as you think they do. They're really good at looking like they do, but they're making more that money than you sometimes. I also know that there are companies and businesses that actually hire people to do that and they get them the percentage. There's, I know about the backstory of all this stuff and it's very easy for me at a traffic light to become jaded. And to shut my heart out to the people around me. And I've got to learn to say, Lord, talk to me. I've seen her on this corner every single day for the last month. Instead of me saying, how much has she made by now? Is there something you want me to do? Show me how you see her. And folks, little by little, you're going to start seeing the real Jesus that's within us already be allowed to live himself out. Look at verses 8 through 12. Because James now goes on and he talks about the law in three different ways. I don't know if you caught it or not. Look at verse 8. If you really, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So here's three different things he says here. He says there's the royal law, there's the law of God, and there's the law of liberty. What's the difference between the royal law the law of God and the law of liberty. Well, 
The royal law is a way of describing the law of God the way Jesus did by summing it all up into two things. Again, because of time, I want you to go and look at it later on. But in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is where God's law says, Leviticus 19, 18, says, love your neighbor as yourself. Also in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, is where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, those are the two passages, Leviticus 19, 18, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, that are going to be referenced by Jesus. Go to Matthew 22. Go to Matthew 22. Look at verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus said was this. He's asked, what's the greatest law, the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus said, well, you know the first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And let me give you the other one. Love the neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. He says, and if you keep these two, you'll keep the whole law. So the royal law is just a way of describing the law of God summed up into two. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love God with everything you have, you'll keep all of those commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep all of those commandments. That's the whole law summed up into two. That's the royal law. We know what the law of God is. That's his written law. But what is this law of liberty? What is this law of liberty? Well, go to James chapter 1. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We actually saw it in James 1 and we probably missed it. Look at verse 25. He's in the passage talking about don't just be a, a person that hears the word, but do it. And he says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. All right. So here he says, the one who looks into the law of liberty and perseveres, he'll be blessed in his doing. The law of liberty is just another way of describing how to keep the law of God. This, is the, this way, though, it's done by God through us and not by us in our own strength. The, law, the royal law is a way of describing how to keep the whole law of God. Love, everything, love God with everything you have. Love your neighbors yourself. You'll keep the whole law. Oh, and if we're who are Christians, we're not judged by whether or not we keep the law anymore. Right. You hopefully understand that we're not judged by whether or not we keep the law, but we are to still keep the law. But how we keep the law now is not by trying to keep the law, but by walking with Jesus. We are under a law of liberty. We've been given freedom to follow him. And if you walk with Jesus, guess what? You'll keep the law. Galatians 5, 16, so I say walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. L let's take you back to a book we haven't seen in a while. Go to Romans chapter 7. For those of you that are new and don't understand my inside jokes, we spent a long time in Romans. That was the book we just finished studying before James. Go to Romans chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 6. Paul says, do you, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be considered adulterous if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. By the way, this is not a passage where Jesus is teaching on whether or not you can be remarried and all that stuff. That's in Matthew 19 and many other places. He's just, Paul's using this as an example. Likewise, though, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You hopefully understand. And if you don't, please hear this. You can't be righteous before God by keeping the law. Why? Because the law said the only way you'll be righteous by keeping the law is to keep it perfectly. The only one that can be declared righteous before God by observing his law is the one who keeps it perfectly. That's why James in two, chapter 2 verse 10 says, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Why? Because the law demands perfection. Well, Jim, who's going to be able to do that? No one can. Very good. That's the whole point. The law came just to show us that no one could keep it. Actually, Adam and Eve broke a commandment and sinned. But between Adam and Eve and Moses bringing the law hundreds of years later, all those people died. Why? Because there was sin. And they had broken God's law that he had written on their hearts. But it hadn't been written out yet. But the law was added, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, so that the trespass would increase. Why? Because man's thinking they're okay. God says, let me show you how okay you're not. Here's my law. Keep it perfectly. And people try. And eventually, hopefully, they come to a point where they realize, I can't. I still hear, my wife deal, teaches a Bible study on Wednesday nights to ladies. I'm sorry, Wednesday mornings to ladies. And there are still ladies who have been taught, well, if you do these things, if you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this, you can be right before God. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by faith, not by works. So no one can boast. Folks, if you think you're going to heaven because you've done certain things, your faith is in your works and you're in trouble because you can't keep God's law perfectly. Oh, but we died to that law. We're no longer going to be judged on how good we've been. That's why I always, people, when people always say to me, well, I think I'll be good enough to get into heaven. I always ask them, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If we can get to heaven by being good or doing certain things, even if the church tells us do these things and you'll go to heaven, beware of that. If we can get to heaven by doing good things, then why did Jesus go through all that he went through on the cross? Folks, we, through faith in Jesus, died to that. Now we've been married to another so that we can serve in the new way to the spirit, not in the old way, of the written code. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 4. There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jump down to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live that way, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. We have been set free from the law and its demands and all that. Praise God. I'm not going to go to heaven because I've been good. I'm going to heaven because Jesus took my payment. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, if you haven't heard it, hear it now. The only way you'll go to heaven is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you say, I believe in Jesus and I've lived a good life, you're not putting full faith in Jesus Christ. You put a little bit of faith in yourself. You understand? But now we who have been set free from the law should serve and are going to be judged according to the law of liberty. And what's the law of liberty? That's walking with Jesus and letting him live his life through us. And if we walk in the spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If we allow him to have control, we won't show partiality. We won't do all these things and we'll start living according to the law. Not in order to get to heaven, but just in order to show that Jesus is in us. Now, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> and I think we're going to have time to finish. I'm excited about that. I was a little worried earlier that we weren't going to finish, but y'all have listened a little faster. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and then verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Remember, the Bible says that the law was for the lost people, the unjust the law was given for everyone who doesn't know Jesus to show them they're a sinner. Once you realize you're a sinner and you can't keep God's law perfectly and you turn to Jesus in faith, the Bible says you're born again. He puts his spirit within you. You're in Christ. Christ is in you and you're guaranteed eternal life. You're no longer under the law. You're under grace. Now, though, does that mean we can do whatever we want? We're not being judged by the law? No, no, no. If you really because the law is good. It's God's law. But instead of focusing on keeping the law, we focus on walking with Jesus. And as you do that, the Spirit will give you life. You'll see evidence of Him in you. Look at verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. See, it's a capital S. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's a process. 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is, who is the Spirit. This is why, if you've ever noticed, James and Paul and many of the New Testament writers kept saying to the church, put off the old self, put on the new self. Stop living like the old person. Live like the new person. You're no longer that person anymore. You're a new creation. But it's not always going to be seen. How many of us have kept the law perfectly since we've been saved? Exactly. But if Jesus is in us, there should be a progress, a transformation. It may be slower than others. Be careful of judging how fast you're growing to the people around you. Because the moment you start thinking or looking around and going, man, I'm really growing faster than these people around me. I'm a better Christian than them. Guess what? You just took a back seat. You just probably felt back to the back of the bus. No. But at the same time, there should be in your life evidence of more of Jesus and less of you. He's in you through faith. You've been born again. Remember how we read it earlier? Not of perishable seed, but imperishable. If he seals you, you're his. Now, it's a process of daily learning to let him take control. That's the law of liberty. What's the royal law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll keep the whole law. Oh, by the way, good luck with that. Apart from Christ, you can't do it. What's the law of liberty? Walk in the spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the law of liberty. Now, verse 13 is where we need to close tonight because it's a bugaboo. And I want you to listen closely because I don't want Satan coming in and starting to mess with some of you. And he's going to try. So you need to let the scripture speak to you and the spirit of God speak to you. Look at verse 13 now of James chapter 2. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy, though, triumphs over judgment. Let me read it to you again. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The context and the whole of Scripture is going to help us understand what this means. Now, when we talk about this word judgment, we're not talking whether you get into heaven or not, because who's he talking to? He's talking to believers, correct? He's telling you, speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty. So he's writing to Christians. So when he's using this term judgment, he's not saying it's going to determine whether or not you get into heaven. But there is still a judgment. You're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? To receive reward for what we've done after salvation, whether it was done by him or whether it was done by us. So with that in mind, keep in mind that that type of judgment, when he measures after salvation, not whether or not you get into heaven, but your reward, it's going to be meted to you according to how you meted it out on the earth. Go to Matthew 18. And if you weren't merciful to the people around you, even as a Christian, you're not going to get a lot of mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. The Jewish teaching was three and that was enough. So he thought he was doing really good. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. 
and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Now, there's many levels to this. This is a parable that Jesus is using. And parables are used to teach a point. But the point is this. How you treat it others, how you mete out these things is how God's going to deal with you. That's why in the book of Luke, we're going to see in just a second, it says, judge not lest you be judged. In the same measure you give it out, it's how God's going to hold it to you. Now, I think that there's two layers of this story in Matthew 18, and the deeper layer is this. It, the servant who had been forgiven the great debt, I think, is a picture of the world. You know, the Bible says that right now, God has forgiven the whole world. Now, don't hear me wrong. I didn't tell you that the whole world's going to heaven. Actually, it narrows the road leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. But actually, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 goes on around verse 17 and says that God was in Christ reconciling, not verse 17, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, be reconciled to God. And then it goes on in the, end, the beginning of chapter 6, and it says, Today's the day of salvation. Don't receive this grace in vain. In other words, at the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world. But that doesn't mean that the whole world's going to be saved. They now have to receive it by faith. Have they been forgiven? Yes. Have they received that forgiveness? And the Bible says that this man was forgiven a great debt. By the way, if you do the math of the number Jesus used in the 10,000 talents or whatever it is, it's like in our day's number, a bazillion, gazillion billion. I mean, it's a lot. And he then has another guy come to him who owed him a pittance in comparison, and he wouldn't forgive him, which is evidence that he had never received the forgiveness that God had given. You see what I'm saying? Now, for believers, this is the second layer of it. For believers, we won't lose our salvation because if you've been saved, you're saved. But if you're judgmental and harsh, when it's your turn to be judged by the Lord after your salvation, it's not going to be easy on you. You know, Matthew 6, you don't have to turn there in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, what? As we, in the same measure in which we forgive those sin against us. And if you don't, Jesus says, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Go to Proverbs 21, verse 13. Proverbs 21, verse 13.
Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Isn't that interesting? The measure in which you give it out is how God's going to deal with you. Well, I want God to be generous and merciful with me. Okay. I got an easy solution. Be generous and merciful with the people around you. All right, I'm going to try harder. No. No. Go to Luke 6. I'm going to do two passages, and then we're going to close. Go to Luke 6. Thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Jesus says, "Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, use it will be measured back to you." Now, as I've already touched on. We all have a problem with this, don't we? Every one of us does. In some level, shape, or form, there's some people that we have a hard time seeing as loved by God as much as us. Again, he never approves of their sin, but he loves them. And we Christians have to learn how to live that balance of loving people, yet not approving of sin. And I know the world today will say, well, if you don't approve of my lifestyle, you don't love me. Well, don't let them try that one on you. You can still love them and not approve of their lifestyle. And that's why Jesus told the woman caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You see, did you catch that? I don't condemn you, but what you're doing is sin. See the difference? So here's the best way I can close this tonight in which it'll help us all start moving in that direction. Go to Psalm 51. The neat thing about David, well, there are many neat things about David, but he was described as a man in which way? A man, what? After God's own heart. In other words, what that meant was David had a heart for God. Now, let me ask you another question. Was David a perfect example of how to live as a Christian? No, he wasn't the greatest dad. He definitely made a few major boo-boos with the Bathsheba situation. I mean, we could list the adultery. We could list the trying to cover it up. We could list the deceit. The, we could list the getting the guy drunk. We could list the guy getting him killed. We could go on and on. But go to Psalm 51. Look at the heading. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth, in truth in the inward being. By the way, when he says in sin my mother conceived me, he said, I've been a sinner since I was conceived. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward, inward being, and you teach, please, please God, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me. You do it, God. I'm making you no promises. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Something we don't have to fear in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, he would remove his spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a con broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David said, I'm a sinner, and I need you to wash me clean. I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to go do some things to make it right. That's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is a contrite heart and a broken spirit. And the Bible says that's how we are to begin each of our days. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We you know what you're saying when you say you're holy? I'm not. But I want you to live your life through me today. And Lord, I don't think for a second that I got this figured out. And Lord, I know there's a lot of stuff about me that needs work. But I'm not going to promise you that we're going to fix it all today. But could you... Could you work on the stuff today that you want to work on? I'm going to lay myself on the altar and let you do it. So, Lord, let's just go through this day together, and you just start working on me. Oh, I'm going to be tempted to go look at my brother or sister to see how they're doing. Take my eyes off of them and put them back on you. And, Lord, make this new me that I already have be seen by others. And, folks, when that is our attitude, we won't show partiality. All those things will all come into play. No Bible study next week. I'll see you in two weeks. I love you.